Something doesn't add up with how California teaches math in classrooms. Can Democratic governors support vouchers, perhaps? Just because you're behind bars doesn't mean you don't need an education. These are all things we're going to talk about today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me again, he's been gone for a while, the man, the myth, the legend, Ravi Gupta, former Obama staffer and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, you have been missing in action. Where have you been? I was out in, well, I've been a bunch of different places. I'm trying to remember the last time we did a pod. I was in Austin, Texas, where I saw you. And then I went to Mississippi for a few days. And then I was in Memphis. And then I was in Tuscany. And then I was in Rome. Wow. And now I'm back in New York for three days. And then I'm heading to Los Angeles, where we're doing a fundraiser with the folks over at Crooked Media for a podcast that we're doing with them. So I'll be over there. And then to Aspen, Colorado. So I'm all over the place. You're a busy guy. I've been a few places. You know, I've been to St. Cloud, Minnesota, (laughs) Alexandria, Minnesota, Avon, Minnesota. I've been around. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I just got back late last night and I I got an etiquette question for you. Mm. So I'm boarding the airplane in Rome and a guy cuts in front of me in line while we're boarding, right? Explicitly cuts. And it's a chaotic situation. It's very clear he cut. I'm like, whatever, it's just one person. We then have to sit next to each other. So I'm sitting there next to this guy who just caught me, and I don't say anything because it's, you know, whatever. Like, what is it to me? Then we're going through immigration, and the same guy cuts the entire line, like cuts through under like this rope and stanchion to get in front of the entire line. So at this point, I'm like, now I'm going to say something. So I, I say to him, and he's with his wife, I said to him, hey, did you just cut this line? He said, yes. <laughs> wow. He just admitted it. And then I said, what is wrong with you? And he goes, what is wrong with you? And I really thought about it while we we're sitting in line. Now we're getting next to each other again. Yeah. And we're next to each other for 30 minutes going through the security line. So I've now talked to a few people today about this. This is like my Larry David moment. What should I have done at that point? What I opted to do is nothing. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to an argument in front of customs. It's not a big deal to me. This guy clearly has issues. Yeah. Would you have left it there or would you have said anything else while you're next to him for 30 minutes? I wanted to tap him on the shoulder and be like, Hey man, you okay? Like what's going on? Like, like, let me tell you what this communicates to everybody. Because if everybody did what you did, it would be chaos, Right. So tell me like what your worldview here is that allows you to do this, you know? This is what I think about that. I think we are in decline as a society and I think good people uh, go silent. You know, this thing around sweat the small stuff and don't sweat the small stuff. And this is like, listen, people do not write into me and get mad at me for what I'm about to say. The whole broken windows thing, like sweating the small details of a decline, a civilization in decline. You can be like, oh, this is just one encounter. This is just one. I mean, you know, a guy cuts in front of me. So what? You know, and it's those little kind of things compounded by many of hymns across society where people do things like don't tip their servers. They jump over the guardrails to get onto the subways. They steal things from stores. And we find reasons to say, well, you know, you know, big deal. You know, I mean, listen, there are videos of people running into CVS's 
grabbing bags full of stuff and just running out. And nobody does anything. There's a whole bunch of bystanders. I've seen one guy stop him. I saw one guy, good citizen, who's like, no, no, you're not going to steal from this store. But the thing that really bothered me was that I got upgraded to business class. Okay. I don't, I don't ever pay for business class, but I got upgraded to business class. And so this wasn't like a poor guy. This was a rich guy with mm-hmm, a Rolex. Mm-hmm. And so it was a part of me thinking, well, this is this guy's worldview. He's like, I'm like the guy who cuts corners and is willing to do the thing that nobody else is willing to do. I will say this much. If what you just said was the way I looked at it at the moment, he would have had a problem. If I thought this is a rich guy trying to take me out because, you know, he thinks that I'm less than him or whatnot, I would have gotten in front of him. Yeah. Do you think you could have taken him physically? Oh, yeah. He was taller than me, but they used to call me when I was a little kid, the pebble, yeah. like, because the rock had just come onto the scene, uh, like when he was at WWE. So cause basically the theory in my neighborhood was that I had the, the sort of self-confidence physically of the rock, but I was not big and had no justification for it. Oh God, that's hilarious. So in my head, I could beat anybody in a fight. <laughs> the pebble. Can you smell what the pebble yeah. is cooking? <laughs> yeah. So the oh pebble was ready to fight, but the adult version of me. You know what? Listen, you would have done society a favor if you would have just jumped in front of him and said, listen, I don't care what your worldview is right now. I'm getting in front of you. Right. All right. Well, let's do our lightning round. So SCOTUS restricts affirmative action. And for people listening, the Supreme Court of the United States restricted affirmative action in their ruling. Is this a good ruling? This is kind of a cop out, Chris. I feel like this is the kind of answer you've given me many times on other issues, which is I think we're focusing on the wrong question, mm-hmm. Right. So right now, a kid from the top 0.1% of income uh, earning households is 80 times more likely to go into an elite college than a kid from the bottom fifth. If you look at any demographic at the elite colleges in the United States, white, black, Asian American, Hispanic, we're talking about the rich kids from those demographics. And so I think there is this question that's thrust onto the court. We've done a lot of reporting around these particular cases, which is, It's a tangled mess because, at least in the case of Harvard, where I've done most of my reporting, they straight up are discriminating against Asian Americans. But wrapped up within this case is a a larger effort to dismantle affirmative action. And so I'm left thinking, well, we need to talk about letting in low-income kids and low-income kids of color. And right now, under the current affirmative action regime that has been dismantled under this case, yes, kids of color have benefited, but largely the rich and upper middle class kids of color. So if we can emerge from this decision with a conversation around legacy admissions, economic affirmative action based on wealth, which actually helps kids of color more than white kids. If you do it just based on income, it disproportionately helps white kids, right? But if you could do it based on wealth... Then, and we we dismantle legacy, then I think actually, regardless of the intent of this court, we'll be in a better environment. But so much is left to be decided after this case. So I would say right now, I am a little bit torn because there are different parts of this decision to agree with, and then there are different parts that I'm skeptical of, including some of the people pushing this decision. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I am. Where are you on this one? So I think that the central question of this case was whether or not America still owes black people anything. Affirmative action came out of a relationship between black and white people in the United States, no one else. And it was based upon four centuries of oppression of one group. So you have one group that had a 400-year head start. So they made it all the way through slavery, through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, into the civil rights movement. And then we were supposed to be equal. Then 
right? So you have this primary class, you have Native Americans who have one unique claim in the United States because they had genocide and they had land taken from them. They were stripped of their culture and lots of things going on. So Native Americans have a very unique case to make with the United States. Black people are another unique case with the United States. They have a settlement that needs to be enforced because, like I said, for centuries, Oh, by the way, during that four centuries is when the capital of the United States and the world was developed on the backs of Black people, right? So thank you, everybody, for the economy that you enjoy today. Trillions of dollars worth of investment that was never paid back. And what we got out of the settlement with the United States is maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years of some programs, one of them being affirmative action. But now we have new minorities, you know, who want to get into the Hunger Games of who should get seats in an elite college. This was the central question, I think, for me. It wasn't all the other stuff that they argued about. It was literally about whether or not the United States still owes Black people anything. And I think the conservative Supreme Court said, no, we want to stop talking about that. We don't want that to be a thing anymore because we don't want to pay the bill that's due. And I think I now see a silver lining in this. (laughs) I didn't see the silver lining before. But here's the silver lining that I see now. The silver lining that I see now is... The only thing that the colleges were trying to do was to make sure that they didn't have dominant races. They want a balanced elite. They want a balance. They want the elite. They want their class to look like the country. And that's a very tricky thing to make happen. They want it to look like the richest part of the country. Well, they want diversity of rich people. They want black and Latino people. They don't there. want my North Nashville kids. They don't want the Jackson. Mississippi they want black kids. and Latino kids there. Rich black and Latino kids. No, not just rich. <laughs> I mean, because there's not. That's not the only place that these kids are coming from, right? I mean, a lot of them probably are. But even then, like, even if you have upper class black people making it in to Harvard, which is a large number, a large percentage of them. That doesn't take away from anything I said, right? Like they are generating the next elite and they want that elite to be balanced and getting that balance now is going to become more tricky because I mean, you know, like even with affirmative action, only 5% or so of black people were making it in, even though we're 13% of the population, 30%, 30 something percent, six times the number of Asian, their population were making it in. And the legacy folks, all the white folks, you know, were getting a ton of seats, Native Americans and Hispanic folks kind of underrepresented there too. But the silver lining that I was going to say that I think is coming out of this now, which is a really good thing, is they're probably going to get very creative about still getting that racial balance. They're still going to want that racial balance. That's not going to stop being a thing that they want. So now they're going to figure out other ways to make it happen. One idea that I heard floated that I really like is, fine, let's just dump testing for one and dump ACT so that people with resources don't game that system. And then just start having a a Harvard high school program where they draw from the poorest zip codes in the United States, which because of segregation, they will definitely get their black people. Then they'll get their Latino people. They'll even get a lot of their Native American folks in that way, right? So if they create a high school to Harvard program, giving preference to people in certain zip codes, that might be the creative way to end this whole thing. So I'm with you on the high school part. I want to hold that discussion on the standardized testing, but you know, take Harvard for example, which was the you know fifty percent of the focus in this case. Seventy percent of students come from the top twenty percent of income. The top one percent of the income distribution has as many students as the bottom sixty percent. And if you disaggregate this by race, it's true by every racial group, which means that they're just taking rich kids basically. And so to me, this is not about my former students in North Nashville. It's not about kids in Jackson, Mississippi. And we need to get to the point 
where those kids are being looked after. Well, it's about some of them, isn't it? I mean, there are kids from those... I mean, so few. Well, 30%. Yeah, 30% of overall kids. That's a third. <laughs> so, yeah, a third are coming from poor places, right? Remember what I said. Yeah. As many kids from the bottom 60% of income distribution compared to the top 1% go to Harvard right now. So when we're looking at, and I said that 70% of the kids at Harvard are from the top 20%, not the kids from North Nashville. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? If you're looking at the poorest 20% of parents, Chris, what percentage do you think that is? I've got it sitting in front of me. Mm, five. Three. Yeah. I was about to say pretty low. Three percent. Now this is a disgrace. And to me, this is not a university that is about genuinely anything. To me, this is window dressing. Like they want to look good. They want to look like they're here to solve oppression, but they're not, right? Like, I'm sorry, like Barack Obama said something to this effect, but Barack Obama's daughter to me doesn't count the same as one of my former students in North Nashville. I'm sorry, they don't have the same life experiences. Now, would I rather have Barack Obama's daughter than George Bush's daughter in that school? Sure, but there's a whole lot of other America that isn't taken into account here. And the fact that only 3% of kids come from about 20%, that needs to be the focus of discussion. And to me, that's why like taking into account wealth yeah. is really important. We need to shake up this system. 3% of kids at Harvard come from the bottom 20%. That means that you know, white kids in Appalachia, black kids in North Nashville, black kids in Jackson, Mississippi, Mississippi Delta, Park Hill, Staten Island, those kids are not accessing that school. Like point blank, they're not accessing that school. And Harvard needs to answer for that. And to me, and this is why like the conversation itself feels to me like a very narrow, important conversation around the elite of society. Which elites do we pick? So this is where I get lost a little bit. The idea that Harvard is responsible for the kids in Nashville not making it to Harvard to me feels like a big stretch. And the idea that Sasha Obama doesn't matter as a black elite. Who said she didn't matter? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no. You're not let me matter. finish. Not let me finish. When I say she doesn't <laughs> okay. matter, she doesn't count in who we should be trying to get into Harvard and into the Ivies. Of course, we should be getting the black elite there. That's where the white elite are. Of course, we should be getting the black elite there, the Latino elite. And the reason right now that many of the black elite and the Latino elite are getting crowded out is because we're using one criteria that actually favors one group and not favors them, right? So I think you're right on the point about we need to find a way to get the poorest kids on track for those schools, right? Like, are they on track even right now? And some of them are. I just want to keep going back to this because someone's going to pull me aside and later and, and tell me that I sounded like I didn't know that there are poor kids that are scoring, you know, well and getting into those colleges. Yes, people, I know that. Like, uh, I keep standing up for that. It's just not in big numbers. As Ravi is saying right now, as you're saying, Ravi, it's just not in big enough numbers. Yes, I see the stories of the poor kid who gets like accepted to like five Ivy League colleges and whatever. I promote those stories. I really like them. But your point is true. It's too few of them, even though we, you know, we celebrate them. But I do want to mention one other thing on this front, yeah. which is affirmative action based on historic discrimination and subjugation ended in 1979 in the Baki decision. So I interviewed David Shaw, who was the uh, legal director for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and is a professor of law at UNC. Previous to that, he was in Michigan. He was in the court the day that Baki was decided. And what he said to me recently, and we did a whole episode on this, was that when that decision came down in 1979, he was there. He was a law student at the time. 
he basically mourned it because he was like, this is the end of affirmative action because from then forward, it was no longer, the rationale that was allowed was no longer about historic subjugation. That's how we get things like 3% of kids from the, the bottom 20%. What it became about was this so-called diversity rationale, which you, you kind of mentioned in the beginning, which is no one group dominates, et cetera, which is bullshit because rich people dominate, right? But we'll put that aside. But what he basically said was it became more about the universities themselves and their First Amendment rights and it became about equal protection under the law or the remedying of prior racial discrimination and slavery. And so to me, that's why I look at this decision and I say, well, the affirmative action functionally began to end in 1979. And if you look at the, the rationale that these universities have been using and their practices, they have done very little to, to justify what they're doing based on that historic discrimination what they've been doing is saying we want a diverse group, but they've been focused on racial diversity, not economic diversity or diversity within racial groups. So that's why I'm not shedding too many tears over this. Well, one, I'll just say what you just said is a point of view. It's not truth. What's not true? The idea that this wasn't what I said originally, that affirmative action was and still is about the settlement of black people with the United States of America. There is a settlement. It's a number of laws, a number of rules, a number of things that were changed and done specifically to settle the Negro question, what was called the Negro question. Now, we can say, well, constitutionally, this or that, or the law, these law cases or whatever, this and that. That doesn't change the fact that the essential question is still the one that it always had been. What should the United States do for Black people? And not poor Black people all black people, right? So when Joy Reid said, listen, the reason that I made it to Harvard is because my good grades and my great SAT scores that I had and being a very bright kid in an undiscovered part of the country did not get me into Harvard. What got me into Harvard was they came looking for me, right? And she did have great grades and high SAT scores and she wouldn't have been on track to go there. I think though, that there's a good reason for there to be a Joy Reid. She's an elite now. She's an elite person. She's become an elite. I think there would be a good reason for us to have more black doctors, black lawyers, black elite, black professors or whatever. I think the country has a vested interest in this one historical group actually developing that class of people like for the leadership of the black class. I, this is something that Du Bois actually argued about. I don't always agree with, with what he said about these things, but there is some utility to that for the race overall. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, but based on what you're saying, does that mean you wouldn't support affirmative action for Latinos or like an immigrant from Puerto Rico or? Yes, in that, like, I think we have ways that we remedy things with Jews and it's not the same thing that we do for everybody else. I think there was a way that we remedied the internment of Asian Americans. It's not the same thing we do for everybody else. We have treaties with Native American tribes that is not the same of what we do with everybody else. Those are unique and special circumstances. And we, we have, I mean, we have a whole Indian affairs section of the government, right? And all I'm saying is I think, you know, Native Americans definitely deserve theirs, but Black Americans also do, right? We never got the land. We never got the treaties. We never got reservations. All we got was, hey, how about if we stop oppressing you from this moment on, kind of, sort of, right? Yeah. I'm 100% with you, to be clear. And I think just to clarify the point, what I'm saying is the term affirmative action, when I talk about what is and isn't allowed, 
from 1979 onward, the Supreme Court itself didn't allow what you just said to be the rationale. Now, of course, in the public square, we can say whatever the rationale we want is, and I totally agree with you. They did not allow universities to justify their programs based on what you just said, the historic discrimination. And so that's why, that's what my point was. It wasn't to say like you, Chris, or or anybody in the public square, or me agreeing with you can't and shouldn't make that justification and try to revive it but it was blocked well before this decision. It's been a continual conservative effort, and we can't act like we don't know where that comes from. Every civil rights law that has passed had an immediate effect of the same group of people fighting it throughout time. Every advance we made, emancipation, that came with a conservative response. Reconstruction came with a conservative response. The Civil Rights of 1964, Civil Rights Act 1964, came with a a conservative response including packing judges, getting cases, and spending a lot of money on lawsuits to reverse things that had been done for people of color. And I think too many people forget the history, the real history of where these things come from when we talk about these issues. But let's move on because this has been the molasses round. (laughs) So (laughs) we got stuck on that one. That's what we should rename the segment. So the second one here is there is an article in Fast Company talking about the number of Americans who feel confident in higher education. It has fallen a shocking amount since 2015. New Gallup poll reveals. Overall confidence in higher education stood at 57% in 2015. That fell to 48% in 2018. But in 2023, Americans' confidence in higher education stands at just 36%. (laughs) What do you make of this? Number one, is it a good thing? Number two, is it just that kind of like people have caught on that college is somehow a scam? Or is it because there's been a campaign against higher ed, you know, like anti-intellectualism? Where is it coming from that... Like in our lifetime, like the most revered people in my family were the ones that made it to college and got through college. That was like a big deal. Like he went to college and now it's kind of like, meh. Same. Yeah. Same. I think part, I think it's complicated. I think it's many of the things you described, but I, I, I peg it mostly at the fact that in the past five decades, the price of college has risen 1600%. And if you look at the inflationary drives, I write about this for Imbroglio today where there was a, an AEI chart looking at different sectors and inflation and, you know, these sort of sectors, subsectors associated with higher education rose faster than any other part of societal spending other than certain segments of healthcare. So healthcare and, and higher education have dramatically outpaced inflation in other areas. So you combine that with the fact that universities themselves are largely unaccountable. So they preference certain things over the quality of the student experience and their learning experience and the outcomes for their students, something that Barack Obama tried to solve, but was fiercely denied. And when he tried to rank universities according to whether they're lowering costs, whether they're producing graduates with jobs, et cetera, he got shot down by the higher education establishment when he tried to do that. So you combine the fact that they want to be unaccountable, they want to be black boxes, they don't want to focus on the student experiences, they don't want to lower costs. In fact, they want to increase costs as much as they possibly can. People look at that and say, well, okay, if I want to be a doctor, I got to go to college. But if I want to be an entrepreneur, if I want to be something else, maybe I'm considering other options. Now I have a whole set of thoughts about whether that's a wise decision or not, but I think that's what people are asking. Yeah. So do you still believe that there's a wage premium 
that goes along with getting a college degree, even if the cost went up, but do you get paid more? You do, although like in looking at this, it's very important that you pick the right degree in the right program because you can, you can get a debt premium yeah. if you yes, pick the wrong that's program. Right. You know Political saying? science, uh, yeah. <laughs> psychology, <laughs> <laughs> and other things that people use when they want to go into retail. Yeah. So Fordham did a report. I think the thing that I've always thought like about you know, going to college is a goal for people that want upward mobility. And I see a lot of like news reports to the contrary. Oh, college doesn't matter anymore. And oh, and it's always by college educated people who are actually having a pretty okay life, even when they're surfing, even when they're surfing from job to job and, you know, kind of like, oh, I'm going to take six months off. I just think I'm going to like blah, blah, blah. That's stuff I never hear working class people say like, oh my God, I'm just going to like, you know, go and think about life for a while. Blah, blah, blah. But, but, you know, like there's a group of college educate people who are dissing college education. I think it's because they don't want to repay their bill, their college, you know, their bill that they have for it. And I don't blame them. They got really bad terms on those. But I was going to say Fordham has a report a couple years ago, I think, on the wage premium that basically says it still holds true. It's not as big as it used to be, but high school graduates have a national mean earnings of $50,151. The national mean for workers with a bachelor's degree is 92608 which is basically $93,000. To me, that's a big difference in your life, right? If you calculate that and compound it over your life, that's a pretty big difference between a person with a high school education and a person with just a bachelor's degree. I also agree with all the stuff around maybe a master's is the new bachelor's, right? Like, like, you know, some things have shifted, but I think your point, the biggest point that you just made that I think we should tell everybody, every high school counselor is tell kids the truth about which majors do what, right? Like when you have a kid that's about to go for that psychology four-year degree, maybe say to them, can we look at some statistics about what, where people with four-year psych degrees end up just to let you know, like, you're not going to be like sitting behind a desk with somebody on a couch. <laughs> That's not what you're going to be doing. You're gonna be working at Macy's as a manager, right? Just so you know. Anyways, that's what I would think is we got to do, we got to be more honest with kids about like these degrees that they get. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, that was true lightning round. What's next? Uh, so we got one more. I don't know if you're going to think this is a good idea or not, but there's a teacher shortage in the United States. Miami-Dade County is trying to figure out a solution to that. Their solution is to start recruiting them earlier in high school. So they're setting up school teaching academies. Beginning in the fall of 2023, students at 51 public high schools will be enrolled in teaching academies, enabling them to take college dual enrollment classes towards earning a teaching degree while completing their high school diplomas. This means in some ways like free college, like all these credits that you get, they're free. And there are people that have graduated with one year of their college already out of the way. Is this a realistic way to get teachers? I mean, I'm just like, try anything you can. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do whatever you can. We've got to get these people in this profession. I think this thing is like broccoli. It's a good thing to do and to eat. It's not going to change your health overwise. It's not going to cure the teacher shortage, but it's a good thing to do overall. Get, get teachers, get kids interested earlier. All right. So first segment, let's jump in. I know we did a long round on, on that one. The, the first round, the segment that we have, it asked the question, can a Democrat governor support voucher programs? The response I have is probably not. But the reason that this comes up is because Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, just was on the, the precipice of 
getting a choice program pushed all the way through and choice people were just holding their breath. There was one that tweeted while it was going on. It's happening in big capital letters on Twitter. And then it didn't happen. (laughs) There's an article called The Way the Keystone State Crumbles. And it basically says Shapiro negotiated a budget deal with Republicans that included the state's first ever K-12 education vouchers, fulfilling a promise that he made during his campaign. But teachers unions and House Democrats opposed the measure, leading to a veto for Shapiro. And all of school choice world melted down like the the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz when they threw water on her. They're melting! So you're my good person who's like in the middle and my friend who who knows democratic politics. Is it as simple as what everybody is saying? Like, you know, was it just the teachers union came in in the middle of the night and they said, Shapiro, you better not do this. And he said, OK, because you're the teachers union. I mean, is it that simple or is there something else working here? Yeah, I called over to some people because some of my former arena candidates are in the legislature over there. And so I talked to some people over there and what I can gather, and some of this is backroom dealing that only a few people know, so I'll I'll never truly get the answer there. But my sense is that Shapiro didn't change his mind on the strength of this program. And the program, just to be clear, is a hundred million dollar fund to fund approximately 13,000 private school scholarships to students who attend a public school ranked in the bottom 15% by statewide performance. And the program was supposed to be passed on the back of an agreement with the Republicans in the Senate that they would not pull from the traditional public school system. So they created a separate line of funding for it. There's other stuff involved, including increases to the traditional public school system, et cetera. And from what I gather, Shapiro has not changed his mind on the substance. He just couldn't get it through. Now, the debate is how hard he tried, and I'm not an expert in Pennsylvania politics. From what I gather, he tried a little bit, didn't try a ton, still believes in it, but now is caught between a rock and a hard place because he still doesn't have a budget, and the Republicans don't seem to want to move forward unless it's in, and Republicans in the Senate, but Democrats in the House won't move forward if it's in. And to to precisely answer your question, I'm not sure it was that the union jumped in in the last minute and changed anything. It's more like they were lurking. People hadn't taken positions on it. Nobody properly whipped the votes. And then unions do as unions do. They don't like vouchers anywhere. And their political machine took hold. Shapiro's people weren't as organized and they're at the moment blocking it. That's kind of where I see mm-hmm. it. I don't see it as a substantive pivot from him. I see it more as a like a sort of execution error. Why do you think he was for it in the first place? I mean, as a Democrat, that's a pretty weird position. Or I shouldn't say weird, but it's an abnormal position for a Democrat. I think it's limited uh, is number one. It's not big. I think two is that it involves the bottom 15% of schools. And I was looking at some of the data for these schools. There's a City Journal article that goes through some of the data. And the data on those programs is incredibly poor. Like anybody looking at it, like I think of, if I'm assuming the best, Josh Shapiro wouldn't probably want to send his kids to those schools. So he's probably like, let's try like something new. There's also, there was a June Commonwealth Foundation poll, and these are not disinterested people, but they support vouchers. But they found that 80% of black respondents supported a voucher-like proposal. Now, I didn't scientifically examine what that means, but 80% is a lot. So it's hard to game 80%, maybe it's not 80, maybe it's 60, but still, 
I think intuitively it makes sense to me that if you're in that bottom 15%, especially, and people are saying, well, we're going to give you another option. You're going to be like, yeah, (laughs) sure. I'll take that. I want that other option, you know? So I hope he continues to be eclectic on this stuff because I do think the Democratic Party needs diversity of thought when it comes to vouchers, ESAs, this kind of stuff, because I do think the involvement in Democrats in some of this legislation could make them better. And I also think that there's a progressive argument in favor of sensible ESA and voucher bills. I don't know. What do you think? You know, I think that it's easier to sell to the left programs that are going to help, number one, the poor, people of color, kids that are struggling. So this is the point where they have to stretch. If you say it's for those kids, they have to stretch a little bit, right? Because they're just against kind of privatization of education, period. So, but for special populations that are, especially kids that are talked about as being trapped in these schools. But I also think, and you're an education person, any alternative that you give to people should be better than the thing that they have right now. And we just don't have any research that tells us that just opening up school choice programs and privatizing education puts kids into better positions. In fact, we have lots of research that tells us the opposite. Indiana, Louisiana, Ohio, Washington, D.C., they have all had the result that they don't see improved test scores from attending private schools. And in fact, in some places, they decline. Their their test scores decline, right? So the idea that this is anything other than just a new choice for parents, like giving those parents something different, like a choice between and, you know, two things that are bad for you (laughs) are not great for you, then that makes sense. But if it's about kind of like an educational intervention that kind of intervenes in failure, like what we used to call failure factories, something, well, there's like 99 educational interventions that you can do, but school choice isn't one of the ones that leads to better outcomes. Yeah. I've been torn on this question and I've been having a lot of conversations with people who have very different views on this to try to come to my own view on this. And here's the argument that I'm wrestling with right now. I'm not sure I fully believe it, but I'll just put it to you. Maybe it's not a technocratic argument at all. Maybe it's not about what's more effective or not, but about the autonomy and and sort of dignity of the people making the choice, right? So like a good example here, and I'm not saying this is a one-to-one comparison to be clear, but this is what people who support this will say, and I find it somewhat persuasive, is that compare it, for example, to government food assistance, right? I am not a believer that that food assistance should be tethered to whether you make healthy food choices or not, right? It should just be yours to make because I think the inherent dignity of people warrants that we should allow people to have the basic subsistence they need and we shouldn't use that to micromanage their choices, right? Now, I know it's not the same exact thing with schools, Mm -hmm. but I do think that in the end, if I'm putting myself in the position of those parents... And then I compare it to, say, like a wealthy parent. Nobody's like, is that an effective use of your money, right? They just have the money. They make their own choices. They want to send their kid to ballerina school. They send their kid to ballerina school. If they want to send their kid to horseback riding school, they do it. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe like the part of my brain that just wants to know whether this is effective or not needs to be shut down for a little while. And I just need to ask (laughs) whether this is something that people deserve to be able to make the choice on their own. Like, I don't know if that makes any sense, Chris. I'm not saying I fully believe this, but this is the argument that I'm wrestling with right now. Well, if the question is, how do we get America's children ahead because they're lagging right now, this isn't the answer. 
So if the, if the question is, how can we just make parents feel better about making a choice that doesn't lead to anything better, then yeah, that's the answer. But if the question really is, listen, we've got 50 to 55 million kids. The majority of them had just lost a lot of progress that they had made over a couple of decades. We're going to need to do some interventions to intervene on their kind of lagging education right now. So let's consider some things. Let's put some things A, B, C, D, E, F, G on the table. This one isn't one of the ones that actually is mature enough to be in that discussion. This is like a kid's discussion. Like this is, this is for people that don't understand education, don't understand teaching, learning, instruction, how classrooms work, how assessments work, you know, how data drives instruction. This is kind of like some other side conversation that a group of people want us to have that actually doesn't lead kids to a better place. But I think you, you make an interesting point that I think is really interesting for people listening to pay attention to, because what this is, is this has become the one welfare program that Republicans will support. And they hate welfare, but they love actually now the idea of giving welfare to private school students who have never been in public schools before. In some states, it's 60 or 70 percent of the people signing up have never been in a public school, meaning you're taking money directly out of the poor people's system and putting it into welfare for a new group of kids who are already well-to-do and doing all right. So this is welfare for a group of people. And if we look at it that way, then we have to say, okay, so what is their motive usually with welfare? It's always to cut it. It's always to cut it. That's it. year over year. This is Their inclination is always to cut welfare. So this is educational welfare. Let's get a bunch of kids into it. And then let's actually watch the private school prices start going up and watch the portion of which the government pays start going down because that's the way they handle welfare. But in this particular case, it's not pulling from the traditional system as designed from what I can tell. You mean in Pennsylvania? Yeah. 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 That's because this is a starter choice program. It's just a starter one. This is what they want to start with, but they'll get there. Yeah, but I, I think I'm not sure. I, I believe that there is a, an inevitability to that, right? Like, I do think that you have a Democratic governor and a Democratic House and who are, you know, very meekly supportive at most of this, like in the best case scenario. And this is what I think, like, this is back to my point of if you have Democrats at the table crafting different versions of this, then we'll be able to compare. Well, what does it look like if we keep it about the kids who are struggling the most versus if we have more expansive programs that allow everybody else in? I think of this in relation to Section 8, right? So when Section 8 was first proposed, it was actually coming from conservative circles. Mm -hmm. And then quickly Democrats latched onto it. And now conservatives are very skeptical of expanding Section 8 and Democrats are supportive of it when it used to be Democrats were skeptical of it you know what I'm saying? And it's like, these things can evolve. And I, and I actually think it's hard to find somebody out there who believes that Robert Moses-esque public housing facilities, where your only option in public housing was to live in a government-run facility, that skyscrapers of you know, congregating people together and not giving people the option to take the dollars and find their own spots. Nobody, or not nobody, but I can't find too many Democrats who think that's the world we should live in anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering whether... 30 years from now, mm -hmm. if this plays out, whether something similar will happen on vouchers and ESAs, where it's hard to imagine today, but it probably was hard to imagine when Section 8 was proposed, like maybe there's a democratic version of this. You raise a couple of interesting points. Number one, I agree with you 100% on public housing. Number two, I think most housing advocates would see Section 8 as a poor stand-in for what really should have been done, which is getting people into ownership, home ownership, to yeah, build wealth and to end poverty through home ownership. And they, you know, they might kind of quibble with the fact that Section 8 was even a good thing. But this is what I want people to understand 
Ravi, when you talk about Democrats being at the table. Democrats were at the table when we had welfare reform, and that's why we have TANF now. TANF is a block grant given to states that allow states to spend that money however they wish. That money used to go directly to needy families in the form of money and services directly to them. Now, 22% of every dollar that is spent on TANF goes to the families, and the rest of the money goes to whatever states want to do with it. And they have done many, many people look this up. Many of your states have done really weird and wild things with TANF money that is earmarked for supporting low-income families. And now 22 cents on the dollar is actually what makes it to those families. That is a Democrat policy and program. Yeah, but is your argument that when Democrats go to the table on issues that they inherently are going to have that structure? It's hard to imagine that with this. No, I didn't say inherently. I do say that it's something to look out for. To pay attention to. So when we say things like, well, you know, if Democrats are at the the table with this voucher bill, I, you know, I kind of trust. No, 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 no. There's no such thing as trust. Well, welfare reform to me, which is a whole different discussion, obviously, is you're putting restrictions on something. Whereas in this case, at least as I'm seeing it here with this Pennsylvania program, you're adding money to a system and expanding the possibilities available to people, right? You're not saying to a family that lives in Philadelphia if you go to your traditional public school system now, you got to do like a citizenship test or something. I don't know, like whatever bullshit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these people are talking about. They're just saying, hey, here's some, if you want to just take money and go wherever you want, you could do that. So to me, like if the structure starts resembling welfare reform, then I would take that argument seriously. But right now I don't see the parallel. You know, I see the parallel very clearly. It was sold, welfare reform was sold as a way to break up the bureaucratic rules of welfare and give states the freedom and the access to do wildly different things for families and to offer families many different choices like job training and you know wealth building programs and whatever. Some of the states took the money and put it in abstinence-only sex ed for poor people, <laughs> right? Like, so, so this idea that we're going to make everybody free, you know, we're going to give you choices. Oh, but we're going to like corral the choices down, like, like Florida does. You know, you have a choice in what kind of school you're going to go to, but we're going to control what can be taught in those schools, and it's not going to be stuff that's going to help you liberate yourself. You've argued on this podcast that charter schools, and I think even in the case of vouchers, there should should be able to do religious education. I don't know that I argue that charter schools should be able to do religious education. Yeah, we were talking about, and I, and I said indoctrinate. Remember this discussion? I was yeah. like, well, you indoctrinate, and you were like, well, that's a strong word. And I'm like, well, and then we talked about Maine yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And so in that case, under that logic, the schools would be in this current system allowed to teach abstinence-only education according to your standard that you like. Oh, I don't like abstinence education, though. <laughs> no, but I I'm don't. saying, but your point, <laughs> your point was, from what I can tell, was, hey, it's not your choice or my choice to make at the individual school level what's okay and not. Yeah. It's about giving people enough choices to like realize their vision for what is right for their kids, mm-hmm. which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm compelled by to a degree, right? Like obviously if your vision for kids is abusive or neglectful or whatever, then I'm not with you. And there's also practical constraints where like if you live in a small town, you can only have one school. So we have to like come together and make some hard choices. But I am persuaded by, especially in big urban environments where there are many possibilities, like 
having a huge diversity of options and eliminating as many barriers as possible to entry for parents to exercise those options. I like the idea of it. It doesn't lead to better outcomes for kids, but I like the idea of it. It sounds good on paper and it's been sold to us many different times and it never has led to better outcomes for kids. And so there's going to be a part of education movement that is always going to be religious, just about outcomes, right? Like I've said many times, I'm kind of agnostic about school model, but I'm religious about outcomes. So if you just always jump to that question, what's going to be the outcome? I know you're going to pitch me on a million different things. What does science tell me is the likely outcome of what you're pitching to me. And in many cases, it just ends the discussion, right? That's why people are changing. Choice people were all about that for many years. But then, you know, and they were about it because they had to make a contrast between the failing system and the much better opportunities that kids were going to get in the private sector. And once the data came back on that, the research came back on that saying, yeah, guys, you know what? Stop saying that. That's not really what happens. (laughs) Then it changed to, oh, but parents will like it. Or it'll be popular or whatever. Well, cool. America's not looking for what will be popular in education. America's looking for a way to get 50 million, 55 million people educated so that we don't have morons running the country in the future. That's just my commentary on what (laughs) what the goals of education should be. Let's move on because we don't have a lot of time. But this last one, I think, is kind of right up your alley. So California math, <laughs> just put those two words together, California and math. California is recently, uh, recently, not so recently, it's been a while, but they recently put through a proposed new framework to overhaul how schools in many districts do math instruction. And in doing so, they stirred up a really big controversy. The California mathematics framework draft proposed guidelines They're not binding, but they are like the big guidance of the state. There are people on both sides of the fence, some who really think that parts of the the program, like removing algebra from uh, middle school and actually making it something that you wait to do until ninth grade is a way to set kids up for failure and not get them through the real sequence of math. And I think you've argued that on this podcast before. The more I dug into this, the more messy it looked. Yes, and yes. hard to figure out who was beating up who. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. It's it's like a big food fight. Yeah, I think that's, and I recommend people to read this Noah Smith post uh, in the Noah Opinion Substack, which I think is very thorough. And he, like me, supports the sort of big picture goals of doing more data science. But he he has a lot to say about the way they're doing it in California, which I find fascinating. And I separate this into two parts. One part is actually an error of the vision itself, and the other part is the error of the execution. On the side of the error of the vision itself is the notion that they want to detrack mathematics. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so what they're doing is they're, according to this framework, they are no longer recommending that you allow kids to take algebra one in the eighth grade and would instead require all students to enroll in the same math curriculum until the ninth grade. And as part of this, they were citing data from San Francisco, which did something similar. And what Smith does in this post is basically dismantle the data from San Francisco, which was at best massively miscalculating their own results and at worst you know, I don't want to go there, but they certainly were <laughs> wrong about their own results. Yeah. And essentially, and you could read the data yourself, detracking in San Francisco correlated. I don't want to claim I know the causation and neither does Smith, but he says it seems like this is related. Math scores drop precipitously at this time. And I also just like inherently don't believe in the idea of detracking that late. Like, I do think it helps both the kids who struggle and the kids who succeed to get them in places where you can get a teacher 
teaching students based on their needs, right? And not having a kid who could do fucking linear, you know, uh, equations or whatever. And then a kid who's still struggling with basic multiplication in the same classroom. I've seen these classrooms before. They are not, it's just not possible to do that well without technology, right? And at that point, well, we can go there. We've talked about that. But the other part of it is the data science piece. And it, from what I can gather, Chris, you, you read this piece too. The vision is right. They just picked the wrong experts and were very sloppy in their execution of this, where it got very squishy and it became less about data science and more like data awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. It's just very, very low rigor. So this goes back to what I said previously about outcomes. The only question ever to ask is tell me what the outcomes are. And you just hinted to them. Like we, they're, they're doing a thing where if they ask the question, what are going to be the outcomes of this? What does science tell them? You just said it. You just said what science should tell you. So this should answer it for California. Someone, you know, the governor or someone really smart. Listen to what this says. Not only did detracting not achieve its stated goals of advancing math equity in San Francisco, it actually harmed black and brown students. By the end of 10th grade, Algebra 2 enrollments of black and brown students declined since their families were less likely to afford expensive workarounds that white and Asian families pursued. Instead, most of the district's black and Latino students ended up in a diluted compression course And by compression course, people understand this is just kind of a made-up class that they said is going to be semi-rigorous enough to be worthy of getting you into college, into some of the better colleges, but it's so watered down that it's not true. And they put the majority of their Black and Latino kids into that class, into a compression class that lacked about 75% of the state's pre-calculus standards. Now think about this. Outcomes. What did that just tell us? What did I just say? (laughs) Right? If, if we used my kind of rule, talk about the outcomes first, this would never go through. There'd be nothing to support it. Well, I, I also think this is a shame on the leadership in California, political leadership, because you can't let documents like this make it through. Like, I'm sorry. Like, you can't ignore the execution and the details of something as important as how the vast majority of middle school and high school kids are spending hours a day. Like, this should be the kind of thing that we obsess over as a society. And clearly they did not hear. Mm-hmm. Like, it, there's mm-hmm. no reading of this that tells me that this was the best and the brightest minds of California coming together or even, like, just the best and the brightest of the political establishment are coming together. I bet you that the average politician in the California legislature spent... as much time on this as they spend calling people for money. And that's probably being generous. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I bet a lot of them have never read this document. I bet even people on the education committee didn't read this document. If they did, that's an indictment on their own intellect and level of detail. Let me push back on that just a little bit. Because I read the documents, and I think that if you were reading this cold, it makes a pretty good case. And it doesn't look illogical. It doesn't look like it's based on nothing when you read it. So you have to actually be somebody who understands deeply what to argue about. Like when you read it, like if you're not a person who's in math policy and understands this, you don't even know where to begin to, to argue because it, it sounds good. It's, it's not based on nothing. 
it's based on some things. Dr. Joe Bowler, who is the person that is considered to be like the godmother of this entire project, actually is a Stanford professor who does a lot of the research around it and actually had a lot of hand in making it happen. But just across the, the river there, or the river, the, the bay there in Berkeley, there's a black professor who says, don't listen to her. <laughs> right? A group of black professors, apparently. Yeah. yeah, she's a Stanford professor. That's great. That's cool. And she's got a lot of research on her side, but we're going to bring you some alternative research which makes it hard for the public, I think, if you're kind of like a civilian on this issue. It's hard to understand. So people just understand. There is a math war afoot. California is, is like the, what we're talking about right now. But in your state, too, I'm almost betting that there is some fuzzy math and there's some old math and there's some new math and there's some common core math. There's a mix of things going on and no one's minding the shop on math. We talk a lot about the science of reading. We don't talk a lot about the science of math. And I think we'll catch up. We'll get there. I mean, I think some people are talking about it. But your state was teaching reading for the longest time, and they probably still are, just to, not to alarm you. But your state's probably teaching reading the wrong way now, still, if you're the majority of states. And they're probably teaching math in some way that actually is not getting uh, kids engaged and, and in the sequencing of math that gets them ready for college. So anyways, I know we got to run, but I have one last one that I think is perfect for you, Ravi, because I'm going to ask you a stupid question. What do you think about this? I'm going to say, what do you think about this? And I, I know your answer already. Tell me. And it's something that actually strikes at my heart that I think is really big deal because I don't think that there's ever time we should consider human beings disposable. And what happens when we put people into jail, when we incarcerate people, we strip them of their dignity, and we strip them in many ways of their future, and we invest in nothing in them coming out being productive, better people. We actually do, a, we have a very retributive a system of punishment and and kind of not the other part, the part about let's help you be better. So there's many chances to learn. Students behind bars are facing a new level of hope because the federal government is shelling out $130 million to bring free college to about 30,000 inmates in places like Folsom Prison. Think about that. Like in a place like Folsom Prison, you can get a Pell Grant now to attend college and do real kind of college courses. And they, Yale, we talked about this, I think, maybe on one of the shows. Yale has graduated a class of incarcerated people with degrees now, and many of them will get out. They'll have a college degree. Of course, they will still have a criminal record. But here's the stupid question, Ravi. Are you for it? Well, you said you th you, you, you had a sense of where I'd come down on this. I'm curious where you think I would come down Well, I know this. you worked on something like this once, and I, I just wonder what's the national policy to make this like much bigger and the thing. like We should make this a big thing, right? 30,000 sounds great, but how could this be like the regular thing we do. Yeah. I, I want to say at the outset that I support programs that are well executed in this area, but like the data science, the devil is very much in the details, <laughs> right? Like who accesses this program is very important and who doesn't, right? Especially for legitimacy is really important to me too. Like, like the public elects officials who make these decisions, those officials have to be very careful about what they ask of the public, especially when a lot of that public didn't attend college themselves. And so this is an area where as somebody, I've spent a lot of time on this. I had a whole nonprofit called Second Chance Studios that helped people coming out of the prison system get jobs in the uh, multimedia space. And we had a 100% graduation rate on our first program and, and all of them got jobs. And so I believe in second chances. I believe in programs like this if, you target it in a way that maintains the legitimacy of the program and where you could look someone in the eye who's a carpenter, who did not go to college themselves, who is saving up for their kids to go to college, and you could look them in the eyes and say, this is why this is good for society, and this is why 
mass murderer, a rapist, a yada, 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 either is or is not going to be in this program. You need to have answers to these questions, right? Because these are the questions I got when I was raising money, Mm -hmm, which is like, mm -hmm. hey, like, do you draw a line anywhere? Like, what if somebody is a sex criminal? What if somebody molested children? What if somebody this or that? And you need to have answers for that. What would you say to those questions? By and large, we made the decision to make it all about nonviolent offenses Mm -hmm, because we could mm -hmm. not raise the money otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you should start. I reserve judgment on expanding it from there, but I think there's so many nonviolent offenders in prison that let's at least start there. You could show that it works with them. There's less moral outrage. These programs won't be shut down tomorrow and then save the tougher questions for later on. That's my position. I know it sounds like a cop-out. No, I get it. I mean, it's, it's, it's pragmatic, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it's smart. It's like policymaking. I think kind of philosophically about it, like, do you think that a person who we're not going to kill, like we're not putting them on death row, so we're just going to have them for the rest of their lives, are they better off being smarter or dumber? <laughs> right? like, yeah, I, I think like when I talk about prison, the, the decision to send somebody to prison, I might sound more like, especially when it comes to violent offenses, mm-hmm, nonviolent, mm-hmm. I'm, I sound like a liberal, violent offenses, I sound more like a conservative, but like that's my split when it comes to sending somebody to prison. But when you talk about the conditions of prison, my, my brother's a federal corrections officer, and I've spent a lot of time with people coming out of the prison system. Our own board chair of Second Chance Studios spent a lot of time in prison, cost Marte. I myself have fucked up a lot and have had many second chances, and second chances were inherent in the design of my schools, is that you know you, nobody is the worst version of themselves. Like Brian Stevenson has a more eloquent way of putting it. I am willing to... On the one hand, anybody you're going to send back into society, you need to have an answer as to how they're going to succeed in society, mm-hmm. you know, and not mm-hmm. repeat offenses and just like, just at the very basics, don't repeat the offense and be a productive member of society. Mm-hmm. At best, like you can say that they flourish, right? We want everybody to flourish or most people maybe. The question of the people you're not sending out of prison to me is is complicated, but at the very least, we should start with ensuring that everybody has dignity, respect, and safety which is not something we guarantee in our prisons today, and quite to the contrary, like threats of rape and violence and just mistreatment. It's horrendous. Like, And I think that there are innocent people in prison who are subjected to that, which alone is a reason why we should dramatically improve the conditions in prison. But you don't sentence somebody to life in prison and torture, right? You sentence them to life in prison. So unless we're willing to change our statutes and say we're going to torture people and send them to prison, which is essentially what happens to a lot of people when they go to prison— then we need to stop that from happening and we need to devote way more resources to it. I'll get off my soapbox, but that's kind of my, my, my prison opinions. I know, it's, I know that was a lot. You know, I'll just say this. I think it's something that we should reform. I think it's something that there should be, there are already attempts and movements at reforming it. We were supposed to make them smarter and safer years ago. We did pass, I think, I don't know what year it was, but one to eliminate rape from prison sexual assault. The number, the I forgot what the number is, the statistic on the number of people that come out of prison having been sexually assaulted. It's just astounding the, the conditions that we put them in. Countries around the world kind of actually laugh at us. We incarcerate the most number of people and we put them into one of the most punishing systems and so society's no better for it. Like we may get our kind of like, you know, our bloodlust for like revenge on them, but that actually doesn't serve us well. Before I get off my soapbox, I'll say there are three notable prison education programs that achieve success at 
reducing recidivism. That's very important because what do I always ask about? I always ask about outcomes. What are the outcomes? Well, these programs have the outcome of reducing recidivism, which is the thing you just talked about. One is the Bard Prison Initiative that operates in several New York state correctional facilities, and they give liberal arts education to their incarcerated people. Prison University Project at San Quentin Prison does the same thing. They offer college courses and degree programs in partnership with Patton University. And if I remember right, Patton was the university that made it almost debt-free for you to be able to to graduate debt-free with a college degree, which is amazing. And the last one is the Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison, a nonprofit organization that provides college education to incarcerated individuals. And that, again, that's in New York. I don't know why New York is like the one that really wants to have all these programs and, and no one else does, but let's do it, people. Let's be more kind of open and generous about who gets education because everybody's better for it. Like you just will never be better with dumber people. I don't care whether they're a mass murderer or not making them smarter or more educated, I think actually helps us in the long run. So that's where I think we can end for the week. Uh, We did have some listener feedback, one from Mark. I think we're going to play the voicemail. Oh, you're so excited for these ones. I'm excited for this one. We're going to play the voicemail. Hi, Chris. I just listened to Debate Education Savings Account, and oh my God, I agree with you 110%. So I just want to say, you guys always should get to us and get information to us and talk back to us and, and give us feedback, especially when it's like this, right? Because when someone says that Chris is right about everything, right? That actually is just like such a boon for, for the show. I love it so much. I love it so much. So thank you, Mark. We also had an email from Peter that was in response to our podcast that we did with Mark Porter McGee. And it just is, you know, it's nice to hear what listeners hear when they listen to us. He says, I was personally excited about the talk around summer camps as the leader of an experiential high school, former YMCA camp director and current board chair for the camp. This spoke to me. Thanks for the great podcast and continuing to push my thinking on education. Be well. Will you be well too, Peter? Thank you so much for listening to our show. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show, a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart on all the socials. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta on all the socials. And as always, go to thebranchmedia.org and check out the other shows. All great shows. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.